Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wabner. Thanks, Carl. Front and center this hour, the playbook for your money with stocks hovering near record highs. Some major new moves now from our investment committee. You need to hear about those. Joining me for the hour today, Brenda Vingello, Joe Terranova, Rob Seach, and Pete Najarian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's check stocks as the Dow and the S&P look to extend their record runs. There you see, got a little bit of work to do. Dow slightly negative, as is the S&P. NASDAQ is higher, though. And as Carl said, the 10-year note yield Uh, That's a big story today at 1.31 percent. Joe Terranova. So we got the tenure on the move. Banks are on the run. And I come to you first because on Friday you tell us you bought Bank of America. I did, Scott, and I'm just continuing to add to the financial trade. Uh, I view the inflation friendly trade as being liquidated over the prior four weeks. Now, from a positioning perspective, with the concurrent rise in yields, you're going to see uh, market participants race back towards those inflation-friendly assets. And I, Scott, I think they're doing it in particular for financials themselves. Uh, Bank of America, I selected because of the correlation to the yield curve. Not only is the 10-year yield rising here from 1.12, but also the yield curve is moving out. Why is that important? Because net interest income expectations for the year, we saw the analyst community guide those lower for Bank of America. They might be wrong on that. They might have to raise it. So uh, I look in the terms of perspective of where are people positioned. And I think right now you're going back towards healthcare, You're going back towards financials. And the value rotation is really what I would be focused on. I don't think this comes at the expense of technology. I think this is internal to value where you're selling out of commodities, you're selling out of energy, the casinos, the airlines, and within value, you're moving right towards healthcare and financials are going to keep adding there. All right, we're going to get to a lot of, of what you said through the course of the hour, but Joe's not the only one who sees opportunity in the financials, right, Pete? Uh, you're buying Bank of America right. calls. You did that today, I believe. And you're also seeing some unusual activity today yeah. in, in Goldman Sachs. Just take us through both. Yep. So the Bank of America, Scott, actually was last week. It was late last week on Friday. We had some huge option paper coming into there, buying multiple strikes, expiring this week. So very short term, again, like everything else has been, very, very short term. But the Goldman Sachs trade is amazing to me as well because you look at where Goldman Sachs is trading. It started off at 395 when they started buying these calls, Scott. The, the calls that they're buying are the 400 strike calls that expire on Friday. So they're buying right at the money calls, trying to get that leverage to try to get a move. If there is a move to the upside, it's a little bit of a move already. But it started at 395, moved up to 400, and we had some very nice size buyers of those calls. And so, you know, when you get 8,000 or so buying of, of, of an option like that, That's something that's going to definitely ring and make sure that uh, you pay attention to it. I did, and I immediately jumped on these calls as well. So hopefully we've got a little bit of a move to the upside. Obviously, the 10-year, as Joe points out, very important as it's made a nice move 
from those lows up here towards that 1-3 area in a very, very sort of methodical move, I think, to the upside. It hasn't been a violent move, I wouldn't say. But we've got Morgan Stanley calls. I've got Goldman Sachs calls. I've got Bank of America calls. And I've got the stocks and a couple of different financials as well, Wells Fargo and Bank of America. So I really feel like I've got myself sort of surrounding these financials in every different way that I can, including Capital One, which is far more of a credit card company. But I still love that name as well, and I think there's plenty of room to the upside. I think all of these names are trading very, very inexpensively, I think, right now. Well, I mean, Brenda, this plays right into the story that rates are going higher sooner rather than later, that the jobs report that we got on Friday with nearly a million new jobs and what may come in the months ahead um, is going to move the taper a little bit sooner, perhaps, than people had thought. I've got Fed, um, Atlanta Fed Pres Bostic. He's on the tape just a few moments ago, says he's in favor of going, in his words, relatively fast on the taper. He could back a September taper decision if job growth remains explosive. We're, quote, well on the road to substantial further progress. Remember, a metric set by the chairman himself. And then he sees rate hikes and in, in, he's in the 2022 camp. That's exactly what we're talking about here. The market needs to start assuming now that the taper is going to happen sooner rather than later? Well, I think the Fed has done a good job of communicating better this time around, certainly better than in 2013. So when the taper actually does start to happen, I don't think it's going to be as much of a surprise. Now, you know, the bond market has really been the area that hasn't been hinting that there's going to be any sign of taper. So I think it's encouraging to see yields start ticking up a little bit over the last few days. So we're not in the camp that we're going to see taper happen immediately and because we still think, um, you know, we need some more time to see more data perhaps, uh, but it's certainly encouraging that we're seeing a, a job growth come back. It should be more significant as time goes on, uh, but also really encouraged by the economy and the fact that things are getting better. Corporate earnings are incredibly strong. So to Joe's, Joe's point about having seen this pause in, in the, the trade towards more value and cyclically oriented sectors, I think a lot of that probably had to do with the fact that we were, had a little bit of a growth scare here with the Delta variant. But I think we're working through that. And so I, I, we are similarly of the camp that you could see a rotation back into those more cyclically sensitive groups, particularly as we see rates ultimately rise. You know, I'm looking at the, the calendar for the Fed, Rob Seachin. So you know, Jackson Hole is this month, right? This Bostic timeline, if you will, makes uh, sense from a calendar standpoint, right? They maybe lay some groundwork with a speech at Jackson Hole. And then late September, the 21st and 22nd, when they have the meeting, you know, if he says he could back a September taper um, decision, if job growth remains where it was in October, do we need as investors to start positioning ourselves for that very scenario and start doing it today, Rob? I think as investors, you always have to look ahead, Scott. But I, I'd say on the margin, there is more evidence that the, that the Fed should taper. Um, but it sounds like they're not going to do that yet. The critical jobs report is in September because that's when schools open and that's when we get back to back to kind of some sense of normal. In addition, you have this 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 Delta variant on the front dashboard. So I would say the Jackson Hole is low risk. I don't know why 
they would rush. Um, I do think that, you know, we got scared because it looked like economic growth rates were peaking and that they, it couldn't continue. The bond market did not seem to respond to inflationary data. And now, as of Friday's report, we're starting to see that. And we still believe that economic growth will remain strong and that this rolling economic recovery will continue, probably delayed due to the Delta variant. But the real danger is diminished confidence. And we just don't we don't see see it yet. Um, our view is investors should look through the latest economic data forecast, take advantage of what we've seen here lately, which is the, the value in cyclical stocks not doing as well, and use days like today for energy or uh, you know weakness in financials over, over the last little bit to add positions just like the other guys uh, were talking about, because we're optimistic that the, the Delta variant will prove manageable and that the Fed's not going to move just yet. And can I add one more thing just on why we think you can look through the Delta variant? It's all about hospitalization rates. And if hospitalization rates stay low, especially in areas where vaccination rates are high and populations has high incidence of antibodies, it obviates the need for lockdowns. And so we want to look through that and use times like this to really add to our positions that are more cyclical in nature and expect some slight underperformance in the growth side of the equation. I'm not going to abandon that by any means, but I would suspect that you're going to see uh, this cyclical tilt for a bit. All right. So Dr. Gottlieb, of course, was on Squawk Box earlier today, said he called the Delta variant, quote, the final wave, the final act of, of this whole deal. Um, barring, of course, some new uh, and unforeseen and more dangerous variant that would obviously be be a game changer. The fact of the matter is, Joe, that you can still be bullish stocks without being as bullish as you perhaps once were. That's what Keith Meister told us last week when he was on the show on Friday. Let's listen to Corvex Capital's Keith Meister. We can react on the other side of that. I think the backdrop is pretty high. Unemployment's down to five and a half percent. There's huge savings on the sidelines. Interest rates are low. Yeah, sure. Could we have a five percent pullback or something associated with tapering? Yes. But in general, is the economy good? And did we get a reset? And are we probably earlier in the cycle than we should be here? Yeah. So, I mean, in general, it's hard to be bearish. Now, what keeps me from being so bullish is valuations. Um, you know, stocks are not cheap, broadly defined, and we're up 18% this year. So we've moved a lot. He mentioned the, the taper as well as, as one of the reasons why you can't quite be as bullish, Joe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with everything that Keith said. And I think one of the other reasons why uh, you can be bullish is because the rest of the world is so far behind us in terms of their COVID trends. And I would expect those COVID trends uh, to have the same confidence that Dr. Gottlieb is exhibiting, where ultimately they'll reach a point where asset pricing XUS is going to recover. I think that's going to give a general lift to assets globally. But uh, I agree with Keith. I think, yes, you could have a 5%, you could have a 10% correction tomorrow, but I'm not going to be moving out of the market on the expectation of that. And actually, if you did have a 5 to 10% correction, I think a lot of people would be coming on this network talking about that as a tremendous opportunity. Scott, you're early in the business cycle. Yes, we're anticipating, and I think that you absolutely should anticipate that the Federal Reserve is going to be tapering their asset purchase program, but they're not ending the asset purchase program. They have a historically high 
amount of uh, purchases on a monthly basis, 120 billion. Even if they rolled that back to 105 or 100 billion, that's still a tremendous amount of liquidity that dictates you remain invested in the market. Yeah, it's like you go from a water cannon's worth of liquidity to a fire hose, <laughs> right? You're still you're still right. flush uh, with liquidity in the system, which perhaps is why. Credit Suisse's Jonathan Golub today reiterates 2021 S&P target at the end of this year, 4,600, and initiates a 2022 target of 5,000. David Costin over at Goldman Sachs says the S&P is going to reach 4,700 uh, by the end of the year. Brenda, that makes sense to you? It does. And I mean, as much as we can all be worried about valuation, you know, there really are kind of three factors that I think give us less pause with where we are from a valuation perspective. One is just how low rates continue to be, even though they're ticking up a little bit here. Uh, but two is just the extent of the earnings beats that we've seen so far this year. And even though this, the market's up 19 percent, forward earnings projections have, have risen more than that uh, since the beginning of the year. So we actually have seen valuation come down a little bit. And lastly, if you look at where the valuation is the most egregious, it's really in that group of top 10 stocks in the S&P 500. So plenty of opportunities outside of that group, which also speaks to everyone's comments about, you know, staying within that cycl those cyclical groups, not completely abandoning growth, but having that tilt towards more cyclical groups, I think makes sense. Pete, you, you can say, you know, what, what Meister says, um, you know, is obviously true about where valuations are. The, the question is, can you justify where they are by virtue of the fact that earnings have been pretty darn good? And that's a bit of an understatement in and of itself. We're up 93 percent year over year thus far. Revenues uh, are up 23 yeah. percent year on year. And you've had about 90 percent of companies report. That's the big question. Are valuations too stretched? Or are earnings justifying where valuations are so the P.E. isn't as wide as it once was because earnings have improved to a, a very measurable degree? Yeah, I think that uh, on, on the basis of what we've seen so far, Scott, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I think the reality is some of these companies, and we said this a while back, you know, multiple quarters ago, can they grow into where they are? Are their earnings, are they, are they continuing to be able to grow their earnings to the point where maybe these valuations aren't as ridiculous as they might seem from the outside. And I think that's exactly what we've been seeing. When you look at a Microsoft or an Apple or some of these names, and I know Apple has lagged significantly relative to some of the other names, but when you look at some of these names and the moves that they made to the upside, across the board, you're looking at names that might be a little stretched from normal levels, but we are not in normal times. And in the times that we are in now, the growth rates have been absolutely extraordinary. And, and, and the bounce back and the speed of which, the velocity of it, has been extraordinary as well, Scott. So I think a lot of these names have absolutely grown into where they are right now. And I think, yes, PEs are a little higher maybe than they were historically. But given the backdrop, it makes sense to me. So there are a lot of different names out there where I do think you've probably got some names that are definitely in front of themselves and they're overpriced and and we bring up a lot of those names all the time when you give me a little bit of flack about some of these great companies but they have ridiculous if they even hey, have I don't PEs. Give you flack. now on the other hand i don't give you flack I just, <laughs> oh, just note, a little bit <laughs> i just note the difference in how you play them right you refuse to own them as stocks right, right. but you're sure as heck willing to play right. in the options market with them that that's all we know it's just a no different strategy yeah. of playing the momentum behind those yeah. names without uh, putting yourself right. too much at risk 
Right, because they're names that we may like, but when you look at the valuation, at any moment the rug can get pulled out of some of those names. So, no, I, I agree with you, Scott. You, you have not hassled me too much on that. But I think the reality no, is when you look at a lot of these names that we talk about all the time, right, they, they have moved up maybe faster, and you look at the PE and you say, you know what, it's a little bit stretched. But when you look at what these companies are becoming, not what they once were, you can understand, and a lot of the time I think it does make a little bit more sense why the valuation is justified at a slightly higher level. And I mean that across the growth stocks and, and, and across many other uh, areas of the marketplace where we have seen some of these names that are much higher probably PE than they were, but I think it's justified based upon the growth and the direction that some of these CEOs are navigating as they look ahead. I'm, I'm watching. We showed Microsoft on the screen a little bit uh, ago as, as you, you were chatting. And Microsoft hit another new high today. 291.55 uh, is the 52-week high for Microsoft. So, you know, parts of technology can, can continue to work. Uh, even with rates going right. up, the NASDAQ is the only of the three majors in the green at this very moment. And at the same time, I've got... Morgan Stanley's Mike, well, by the way, Morgan Stanley's 100 bucks also, above 100. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson says the strong jobs report puts the equity valuations on notice. You know, so we've got to contend with that issue, perhaps. However, the market's been able to absorb almost anything that's hit it, right? With some little bit of a pullback, we've had a rolling correction, not the big one, if you want to call it that. Mike Santoli's with us today, our senior economics, our senior markets reporter, our commentator. Uh, whatever your title is, Mike, welcome. It's good to see you as always. <laughs> I, um, I answer to them all, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you're looking at that, right? I mean, this push-pull yeah. and so the, the ability whole, of the market to withstand a lot. Right. It's not that this market has not had corrections. It just had uh, these kind of asynchronous corrections. Individual parts of the market have had their pullbacks, just not at the same time as the rest. So it's actually kind of come off as this very harmonious rotation that has had the S&P up 18%. So this is NASDAQ 100, mega cap growth, uh, broadly speaking, against the banks index. And you see, what was the issue uh, going into February and March? Enthusiasm about the reopening, uh, right? We have banks just ripping higher, yields going higher. What was the biggest fear at that moment in March, April? The fear was overheating economy, Fed has to get too aggressive, and then we get the peak growth story and yields start to calm down, or maybe the yields are starting to price in the Fed is going to get ahead of inflation. And then uh, we enable the uh, NASDAQ 100 to actually do a lot more of the work. And so it's not exactly an inverse uh, correlation, but they're taking turns uh, basically leading the way. And in other markets in other years, we would have had an S&P 500 pullback of 10 percent or so as people rushed into bonds, as people got concerned about the growth outlook as Delta came. But we have so much market cap in the S&P that is more of a beneficiary of that disinflationary lower yield story, right? 25 percent of the market cap in those top five stocks that it hasn't happened all at once. So transport, small caps, banks, home builders, NASDAQ uh, 100 and, and all of it have had their 10% down moves. It just hasn't happened at the same time. So here you have the equal weight of Russell 1000. Uh, it's actually started to underperform the S&P. So this is the issue a lot of people are pointing to right now. The market has become a little bit narrower, a little bit less inclusive, but the overall S&P has managed to uh, keep progress. That could be an issue if it remains a divergence for a long period of time, but it hasn't really caught up with the overall market. And in fact, in the last week or so, you've seen some catch up on the average stock. So this is not to say it's always going to be this way. You can run into some tightening financial conditions along with some over-aggressive sentiment and positioning at some point, and you can have your big move lower. I just don't think right now the ingredients, or at least the market, Scott, is not behaving in a way that's saying that we're on that ledge at the well, moment. Because, because a tipping point for that, Mike, 
would be perhaps if the FANG stocks rolled over, right? I mean, you had this sure. roll, right? They started the whole thing last fall. And you had this rolling correction, and some have come on and said, look, the mechanism for a bigger pullback would be if the FANG stocks then get hit. And in fact, they're sure. doing the exact opposite. I just mentioned before we came to you, Microsoft, for example, hitting another new all-time high today. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and look, I mean, I think as you get into 2022, you might have more trouble if, in fact, you have another correction in FANG or FANG-like stocks. You know, if the banks are not going to be equipped at that point to rip as one and you don't have that really broad upward revision of earnings estimates, that was what was going on, too. Uh, you know, normally in the second year after a profit revival like we've seen this year, you're going to go back to the old pattern where the, the initial estimates at the start of the year are too high, not too low. This year they were way too low. So that's why I think you could have a choppier, spottier uh, type market, more selective uh, but not necessarily one that says, look, game over, because, again, the cycle isn't there. The Fed's being very transparent about it, how deliberative it is uh, in the process. So for now, you're kind of sidestepping the big one. Which is why Rob Seachin, Tom Lee is predicting and mentioned it again today on Tech Check in the last hour, uh, looking at an everything rally. That's what he called it. And maybe Bitcoin is the move there that we're seeing today is somewhat representative of risk sentiment in the market today. And he says it could still go to 100,000 by the end of this year. Where is it, like 46 today? I haven't looked in the last 10 minutes. Um, mm -hmm. The flip side of that, though, Rob, is Savita Subramanian at Bank of America talking about peak everything, peak growth, peak margins, peak sentiment. How do those contend with one another? It depends on what the, what the market wants to look through to, Scott, right? So, Earlier in the year, we were looking through to economic growth and the value in cyclicals outperformed. Midway through the year, we started to look through a possible peaking. And, you know, some of the tech stocks, the new defensives started to do well. Uh, today, I think you, you need to look through towards an economic acceleration again. And I think you're going to see the value, the value positions do well. What this is a case for is it's a case for diversification. It's not a case for everything, because I think that some parts of the market are still going to struggle. But if you look at the high quality, uh, the high quality tech names, your Microsofts, which is which is our largest position, your Googles and the like, and you marry them with some of the more opportunistic and cyclically oriented stocks, portfolios that contain those have done really, really well. We've tried to steer clear of positions that have enormous earnings risk and high valuation because the juice is just no longer worth the squeeze. If, if you look at kind of uh, what's happening in China, this is just really interesting, I think. JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs lowered their third quarter uh, estimates for China GDP. Why did they do that? Because Asian countries typically have really strong lockdowns as it relates to uh, the virus and the Delta variant is really just delaying the recovery because they increased in the fourth quarter their GDP expectations. That's both JP and Goldman Sachs. And that's just, as you think about the cyclicality of this and the difficulty in predicting actually what's going to happen, I think it's all about delay and it's all about what you look through to. So I think vulnerability is there with these high PE stocks, but it's not there with the great growers because that's secular. And you're going to get a lot of alpha if you start to buy some of these values and cyclicals every time they dip. And we're seeing that today in energy. So I think there's a lot to do. It's really an exciting time to be 
to be active. And, uh, you know, we're doing that. Okay. Uh, let me say thank you to our chief. I'm just going to call you chief everything correspondent or commentator, chief, Mike Santoli. All right. Thanks, you like that okay. one? You good with that? <laughs> All right. As long as it comes with no responsibility, I'm good. Thanks. Oh, I can't promise anything, but uh, we'll see you soon for sure. All right. You guys see Moderna today. It continues to rip higher, hitting another all-time high. Shares have almost doubled in the past month alone. It is the best-performing S&P stock this year, up almost 340%. We're mentioning it today because of that move and the fact that one of our committee members, Steve Weiss, has continued to buy it. He's continued to recommend it, which means many of you may have gotten in with him. Steve, you there? I'm here, Scott. What do we make of this now? Well, today's move is is actually very logical, even though it's up another 11%, because the news that's driving it is that Fauci, I wouldn't say he's done it about face, but he's talked about the need for booster shots in those that are most vulnerable. And as I've been consistently saying, we'll see boosters as a fact of life going out, you know, annually, uh, because there'll be new variants. You also have BioNTech, which reported a great quarter, similar to what Moderna's quarter was. They got approval by Australia today as well. So all those factors, but what this does is they're the bear, one of the bear stories was this is Gilead. Their hep C vaccine was a cure and that it was a one, one shot thing and there was no recovering revenues. People now realize that that's just not true of Moderna, that Moderna is there will be recovering revenues. So I still have, despite the move, and it's up, what, 300% this year alone, mm-hmm. uh, I still have the cheapest stock in my portfolio on current earnings and future earnings. And another way to judge these companies, when you think it's toppy, look at the people they're able to bring in. So they announced on their last quarter call they brought in the chief legal officer from Novartis. They brought in the chief medical officer from J&J. They brought in the chief brand officer from Ogilvy, who's also the, uh, you know, I think, the global CEO. So all these people are taking a look under the covers here and saying, you know right. what, I think this company's got much better upside than the high-quality global brand companies I'm with. So that reinforces it, because you don't typically see companies that where executives are getting part of their comp and options. So they got to believe it's really going to go higher. Well, let me ask you uh, this. Joining. Let me yeah. ask you this, lastly, before I let you run. Um, to the mm-hmm. person who may have followed you in uh, many, many months ago and has ridden this wave up with you, are you inclined to tell them today to continue to buy into the story from a, you know, their dollars standpoint? Even if you can be bullish about the long-term prospects of the company, is today the time right. to buy more or to sell a little? It depends how big a portion of your portfolio is and how much risk you tolerate. As much as I love the company and see the future, see the stock can go up another five-fold from here, it can be in Amazon because it's a technology company, a biotech. If it's 100% of your portfolio or 80% or 75%, that's an intolerable risk. Uh, and even the, C- even the officers of the company have 10B5s where they periodically sell stock. Now they get more. But for me, you know, I've got my core position, which I haven't really touched since being in the 20s. That's sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. I've added on the way up, and I trade around it. So I watch it every day. I'm very comfortable. This continues to be a safe story going forward. But again, individual risk appetite. I I appreciate uh, you telling us that, Weiss. Thanks for calling in. I'll tell you what. I've I've got a couple other movements within Moderna literally as we speak. Let's take a quick break. 
When we come back, I'll tell you right now who else is buying into the Moderna story on this very program. We're back right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Roberta Kaplan, the leader of the anti-sexual harassment group Time's Up, has resigned. She is stepping down over fallout from her work advising New York Governor Andrew Cuomo when the first sexual harassment allegations were made against him last year. In Omaha, Nebraska, flash flooding trapping several people in elevators, some in water up to their necks. Other people in the building helped pry open the elevator doors, allowing them to escape unharmed. Nearly five inches of rain fell in parts of the city. In France, residents and tourists will now have to show proof of vaccination before they can travel across the country or get served in restaurants and bars. People must show a QR code or risk a $160 fine. Some restaurant owners are already refusing to request proof of vaccination. And in Greece, volunteers helping firefighters battle a massive wildfire that's been burning for a week. Thousands of residents and tourists have already fled the fires. And on the news, California's Dixie Fire growing to become the state's largest wildfire ever. And a key climate report shows why the impact of global warming is still accelerating. Tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, we appreciate that, Rahel Solomon. Thank you very much. All right, before the break, I mentioned somebody else on the committee was buying into the Moderna story, quite literally. Uh, Pete Nigerian. You're literally just buying Moderna calls. Yeah, and you know, Steve and I were talking last week about this stock, and obviously he's been talking about it for a lot longer than the last week. He's been saying it for a very, very long period of time, Scott. He's been right. When you look at the balance sheet, you look at the cash flow, you look at all the different metrics that we all look at, the company still seems actually very, very inexpensive. Today what we're seeing is they're buying the 500 strike calls that expire on Friday. They started buying them at about $2 all the way up to about 4 and a half or $5 for these calls. Stock was trading about 4.55 at the time. Man, that's a fast move in a short period of time. But if there's a stock that can move to the upside, I think Moderna definitely has proven in the past that it does move very, very rapidly. So I saw some of that activity there. About 9,000 of those were bought. Dragged me back in. I've been in and out of this name in the past, and now I'm back in it once again. And thanks to Steve, he's been very, very adamant. i got to give him all the credit in the world. He has been on this story for a very long period of time. He's been right, and he's actually, when it's pulled back, 
he's jumped in even more. So you got to give him full credit for his commitment to this stock. And he's been right. Yeah, no question. Uh, one of the best stock yeah. recommendations, if you want to call it that, um, and I guess you can, mm. uh, that we've ever had, I yep. think. Um, and it's incredible yep. to watch it tick higher as you guys continue to talk about your own ownership of it. Um, Joe, you've, you bought it on July 30th at 350. So um, it's just incredible in such a short period of time how, how well you've done as well. It's in the Joe T ETF. But I ask you the same question yeah. I asked Steve Weiss before we let him run. Is today the day to buy more or to sell a little? So I think the answer to that is, is yes. First of all, this is unprecedented in terms of a trade contribution from a committee member, in my opinion, since I've been doing this show. It's unbelievable. But, Scott, Moderna was going to be added to the Quality Momentum Index at the end of July. On Friday the 30th on the close, it was added to the ETF. I studied it because I think there's this massive misconception that Moderna is one of these high-flying stocks similar to the ones in 2020 that we kind of associated, whether it was a Zoom video or a Peloton. It is not. This is a company that, yes, has positive momentum, but it has un unbelievable fundamentals, strong revenue growth, strong return on equity, low debt to equity, and they're buying back a billion dollars worth of shares over the next two years. So I just think there's just dramatic misperception of what it is. And on a valuation basis, it's not that expensive. It basically trades at 50 times next year's earnings. So uh, I'm glad it's in the index. I think the stock will continue to move higher. And it really is uh, the type of Goldman Sachs called it an unprecedented business model. It's an unprecedented trade for Stephen and his contribution. But this is really something that I encourage everyone to take a look at because it's revolutionizing the healthcare industry. Yeah, uh, it really is incredible. The move that it's had this year alone is, is better than 300 and some odd percent, as, as Steve said. And as we showed it to you, 474.96 is the high of the day, uh, and it's, it's basically there, um, we'll call it. Just an astounding move for shares of Moderna. There is other activity to talk about from the committee and the moves that they are making today. Rob Seachin, oh, I hear the music playing. They're going to stop the music in a second. Rob Seachin, you bought JetBlue. Sometimes, you never, when the music starts playing, right, I mean, that's kind of the signal. But Time to get off stage, We're going right? anyway. We're going hey, anyway. Steve's smiling more with, with that, that stock pick on Moderna or his golf shots when we were out together. But it, 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 that's, definitely, that's definitely a jump ball. Yeah, we, we added JetBlue to our opportunistic equity portfolio this morning. Um, you know, it really goes against my better judgment as I had a terrible service experience flying out of lax on uh, on Friday, but it was made up for with the in-flight experience. So we, we did add JetBlue to our opportunistic equity portfolio. The airline industry has certainly had a really challenging 18 months. We like adding cyclical exposure at these levels, as I talked about earlier in this show, um, in the most recent Delta-driven wave. JetBlue's off 30% from its highs. Their model has leveraged the pent-up demand in leisure travel, especially in North America, where we're seeing a faster and more resilient recovery. And we are seeing flow through to JetBlue's top 
top line growth, which doubled in Q2 and guidance from management was slightly ahead of expectations. So uh, we like it. It's only it's pretty attractive value 13 times next year's earnings and five times next year's cash. But you got to figure. So- let me ask you this. Let me let me ask you this. Um, we're watching the stocks down. I think that's at eight percent. Um, I can't. Mm-hmm. Can you guys put that back up, please? Was it eight percent this month? Yeah, eight percent in a, in a one month period. So you got to figure that the pickup in leisure travel was already in the stock. Maybe it's reacting mm-hmm. to concern about the Delta variant. But in part of your note today, you said that you expect business travel to return. Um, I think we all do. I think mm-hmm. we have different time frames as to when it's going to do that. And it doesn't seem to be returning in the very near future, to say the least. So, I mean, how much of a principal part of your thesis is tied to a return to business travel? Because leisure travel is either already in or a, or a worry. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's about the most attractive ways to play a cyclical acceleration. I think you got get a lot of optionality in business travel, but I don't think there's anything slowing, absent some sort of mandate, slowing down uh, down leisure, leisure travel. I traveled for business several times last week. Every plane was full, jam-packed, a um, lot of leisure travelers, a lot of family vacationers. And, and my sense is this stock is reflecting a lot of bad news. Now, it's in our opportunistic portfolio, so we could be in and out very quickly. This is, we only have 10 stocks in here. And uh, I don't want to say that this is, a, this is necessarily a long-term, a long-term hold for us. Okay. But we certainly think it represents attractive value at these levels. All right. I got another move I'm going to get to a little bit later. I promise you I will do that before we go. Up next, though, the big ETFs to watch today. Plus, we do have pizza unusual activity when we come back. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. It's been a lousy week for Bitcoin ETF believers. SEC Chair Gary Gensler has thrown cold water on the idea he will imminently approve the many Bitcoin ETFs now under registration. Joining us to discuss, Dave Laval, Global Head of ETFs at Grayscale Investments, and Simeon Hyman, Global Investment Strategist for ProShares. Dave, Grayscale runs the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. You said you want to convert that fund into an ETF as soon as you can get approval. Handicap this for us. Gensler seems to be signaling he will support Bitcoin future ETFs, but not a pure Bitcoin ETF. Is that your read? And is a Bitcoin ETF futures product really inferior, as many people seem to think it is, as inferior product? Well, thanks for having us, Bob. Um, Really appreciate it. Look, we read Chair Gensler's comments to be very positive, in fact, because the story is no longer if there's going to be a Bitcoin ETF, but when there's going to be a Bitcoin ETF. At Grayscale, we've been committed to converting GBTC into an ETF, and that's just the start of our ambitions in terms of growing our ETF business. And we're not ruling out any structure. It could be futures-based. It could be spot-based. And, Bob, you know as well as anybody, through the entire evolution of the ETF market, 
Uh, regulators have gotten comfortable with each new asset class that they and uh, investors want to be put into the ETF wrapper. Simeon, you were in the right place at the right time. You just launched last week the Bitcoin strategy ETF. It's a mutual fund mutual that fund, holds Bitcoin futures, a mutual fund. Uh, do you agree that Gensler is likely to approve a Bitcoin futures ETF before a pure ETF product? And, and what's Gensler's rationale for just doing a futures Bitcoin ETF first. Sure. So I'm going to be careful not to opine on what we think the SEC might do. But indeed, right now, the only way to do this is with futures. And we were very pleased to be the first out with BTCFX to use futures to get Bitcoin exposure in a mutual fund. And the advantage of, the, of, of this approach is clear. The futures market is regulated. So you've got the CME, you've got the CFTC, you've got the clearinghouse, and then you're in a mutual fund that people understand well, and you can get in and out every day at NAV. So we get the advantages. We're pleased to bring it to market. We think there are a lot of ways that people will ultimately want to get Bitcoin exposure, but this is certainly one way that will appeal to uh, a constituency. Okay, much more on the prospects for a Bitcoin ETF with Dave and Simeon on ETF Edge, 1 p.m. Eastern time. They'll be joined by Dan Egan. He's the Managing Director of Behavioral Finance and Investing at Betterment. He'll delve deeper into the behavioral psychology behind this recent Bitcoin rally. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime. Back right after this. All right, Joe, uh, coming to you because you had another move I wanted to hit today, and it is the emerging markets. You sold it, the IEMG. Yeah, had a race of cash, rising rates uh, in the U.S., rising dollar in the U.S. That's not good for the currencies in the emerging markets. Taper tantrum last time around, saw emerging markets move sideways. I'm out of that position. Okay, appreciate the update there. Pete, unusual. What do you have today? I'm going to start with Snap, Scott. Now, this one's pretty interesting because there's some really nice size here. Stock has been anywhere between $21 all the way up to $79 today, trading just underneath $77. We had a buyer of 20,000 of the August 83 calls in here, going for anywhere between $0.71 and $0.78. Huge trade, looking for a big breakout. Obviously, I just gave you where the highs have been, so looking for something to really break out to the upside here. That's really an interesting one and some nice size to that trade. Square is the next one. Near its 52-week highs, stock when it was trading 271, they started buying calls all the way up to the stock trading up to one or 281, and actually it's even a little bit higher than that now. But they were buying 10,000 of this week's expiring August 13th, the 290 calls going anywhere from between a dollar 30 and three and, and about three dollars and 40 cents. 10,000 of those, so some nice big juicy trades there. I'm back in Snap. I'm also in Square. I'll be riding these until they expire, unless they move so much that I've got to take them off. We understand. Thank you, and we know you'll update us if that yeah. happens. Straight ahead, the SPAC market's pipes getting clogged. We are following the money next right here on The Half. The financing for special purpose acquisition companies, so-called blank check companies or SPACs, is at the center of the slowdown. Our Leslie Kicker is following the money there. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Scott, that's right. New capital raises for SPACs ground to a halt during the second quarter. But there's still nearly 400 SPACs in search of merger targets, which could drive $800 billion worth of deal activity. That's according to Goldman Sachs. Trouble is, the financing market that's used for most of these acquisitions has tightened, according to Gavin Baker. Now, he's the former Fidelity PM and CIO of Atreides. He says investors have become much pickier about pipes or private investments in public equity, as accountants and attorneys changed the treatment of these as illiquid versus liquid 
securities. And of course, funds often have caps on how much they can invest in illiquid securities. And that really froze the market, along with the fact, you know, 70% of SPACs are trading at, um, you know, 1050 or less, which is not a great outcome. Um, and I think has that kind of pig of pipe commitments works its way through the proverbial Python, um, you will see the market loosen up. Baker's full SPAC comments and more can be found in our Delivering Alpha newsletter out this morning. Subscribe at CNBC.com slash Delivering Alpha newsletter. Scott. And Les, you know, I just recall the conversation I had with Keith Meister, who announced his third SPAC on Friday with us on the show, who said um, there was too many SPACs, too many deals. He said it's an awful pipe market. It's an awful SPAC market. Uh, so that tells you how much the tide has turned. <laughs> And yet he's still going out with another SPAC. It's interesting because one thing that Baker said is he kind of broke SPACs down into three buckets. He said there are the unserious SPACs, there are the unscrupulous SPACs, and then there are the serious SPACs, which he attributes to well-known investors. I would presume that Meister would be in that camp. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a tougher market to, to bring something to market. Uh, but, you know, the good ones get through. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker, following the money. Final trades next. All right, we're back. Let's do final trades for this day. Brenda, you're up first. Sure. So UPS, we think fear of our peak cycle is more reflected in the stock now with it down 10% from its recent peak. I think a recently announced stock buyback along with ongoing strength in e-commerce should continue to support the stock and business. All right. Good to see you today. Rob Seachin. Yeah, CNQ, Scott, is Canadian-based EMP company leveraged a rising oil and natural gas prices provides us with cyclical exposure to great valuation. Energy's down today. We want to take advantage of some of the trades at nine times with a 5% dividend yield. Okay, Joe Turnover. Monster Beverage, what a quarter last week, 34% sales growth. Can I finally get my $100 print for this company? I think I've been talking about it now for the last couple of years, but I think it's coming soon. All right, Pete, quick. Crypto's on fire. I'm going with Riot Blockchain. All right, good stuff. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.